Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always. Well, not as always, because she wasn't here last time, but I'm here, back, (laughs) (laughs) with my co-host, Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia, how are you? Hi, Carrie. Um, I'm good. I'm still in the tunnel, so this is just like a miniature appearance for half of the show. The tunnel is dark and long, but I can see the light at the end of it now, which is very good. I just had a very productive morning with Chapter 4, just wrestling it into shape. So I'm feeling quite quite good. How about you? Yeah, well, glad to be back here with you for half of the show. I've just come back from France. Girl, you I, are I, always <laughs> traveling these days. I admire it. <laughs> you got to take the window when you have it, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I've been to France again. That's my news. It was great. Did you eat a croissant for me? I ate so many croissants for you. Thank and God, I had... there's no croissants in the tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Maybe I should send you some tunnel croissants. Are you allowed croissants? Yeah. I mean, yes, it's just that I don't leave the house currently, so I can't get them and I can't make them. (laughs) Interesting. Okay, hold that thought. But on to the show. Today, we're delighted to welcome the writer Sheena Patel to Literary Friction. Sheena's mesmeric first novel, I'm a Fan, is narrated in what seems like one gasp by an unnamed speaker who tells us the story of what appears to be an unequal, unfaithful, and unfulfilling relationship. So as you can probably guess from that description, it's a novel about power and relationships, but it's also about internet culture, social media, and what it means to be a fan. So we thought that a fitting theme for our show today would be fandom in literature. We'll be thinking about things like when fandom tips over into unhealthy obsession and fiction, celebrity memoirs, our own relationship with fandom, and whether we are living in the age of the stan. And I should say, Octavia is here for some chat, um, but but I'm going to be doing the interview with Sheena today, so I hope you can bear with me. Octavia, can you tell our listeners a little more about Sheena? I sure can. Sheena Patel is a writer and assistant director for film and TV who was born and raised in Northwest London. She's part of the Four Brown Girls Who Write Collective and has been published in a pamphlet collection of the same name and a poetry collection also called Four Brown Girls Who Write. In 2022, she was chosen as one of the Observer's top 10 best debut novelists. I'm a Fan is her first book. Also, a quick reminder that we're on Patreon. If you would like to support the work that we do and buy me croissants and get extra content, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash lit friction and get monthly exclusive minisodes as well as a chance to suggest topics for us to talk about. In our latest Patreon minisode, we are going to be talking about the concept of the author. You can also find a list of all the books we recommend today on bookshop.org. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Sheena Patel, a discussion of literary fandom, and finally, our usual reading recommendations. So come scream at us from the first row as we dish out some literary friction. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. We love our fans. We do love our fans. Sheena Patel, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. 
Thank you for having me, Carrie. So I've asked you to start with a reading from I'm a Fan. Do you mind setting it up for us? Absolutely. Um, So I'm going to read from I'm a Fan, which is a book I've just put out last month. I stalk a woman on the internet who is sleeping with the same man as I am. Sometimes when I'm too quick to look at her stories, I block her temporarily so she doesn't know I absentmindedly refresh her page 15 times a minute while Netflix plays in the background on my laptop, my stomach flipping sick with delight when her profile picture is ringed red. She has tens of thousands of followers, is verified and is the daughter of someone famous in America. An endless stream of white people fawn in the comments under her posts. She has opinions about household objects which I have never given a thought to before. Firm taste in the types of beeswax candles to burn. Lays exquisite cloth on her table in anticipation of dinner. Knows where to buy limited edition pottery from well-regarded potters. She will happily spend $300 on a vase where she displays really, really organic fennel flowers, by which she says there is organic and then organic. Buys a $500 ring for herself during a time of financial strife for the rest of the world and shows it off in a selfie. She uses a filter on Instagram which burns up her flaws. It thins down her cheeks and radioactively erases the two thick lines shaped like spooning bees which are carved in her forehead and erupt from her face more prominently when she raises her eyebrows. A sick sense of satisfaction rips through me when I see them. She orders takeout from the right restaurants, seems to know everyone in the higher echelons of society, is accepted into the kind of circles which seem out of reach to me. Sometimes I wonder if I ever met her. What would I say to her? Would I tell her of our connection? Would I tell her I know where she lives? Would I tell her how I guess she broke up with her boyfriend? Would I tell her I know why this tone of her stories change because the man we are both sleeping with, the man I want to be with, shamed her for exploiting her privacy the last time they saw one another? Would I tell her I know who her ex-husband is? I've seen his new family and he seems happy now, happier than the photos I've seen of the two of them. Would I tell her I know who all her friends are and I watch their stories too? Would I tell her I screenshot the photos she takes of herself and study her face so intently sometimes I fear I've picked up some facial expressions or tonal inflections from her because I listen to her speaking with her father on YouTube over and over before I go to sleep? Would I move in closer to smell her and feel what he felt when he felt her? Would I taste the inside of your mouth to find out what was so compelling? Would I press into you? I want to know exactly how your body moves when you are turned on, to know for myself why he cancelled fucking me to fuck you. Great. Thank you so much. I think that gives a really good flavor of this story. And I wanted to just start by asking you, how did it come to you? You know, why did you decide to write about this woman who is in a relationship with a married man and obsessed with one of his other lovers? Well, I was thinking about unavailable love and Instagram and how whiteness and privilege are, like, what are the new iterations of privilege displayed through the internet? Because it looks like, I mean, I know it's all about TikTok at the minute, but Instagram, which has been around forever, you know, like 10 years, it's definitely dictated a lot of, like, taste and what's hot and who's hot. And I think I just saw... I think I was thinking about fandom and what if you had a story of someone who wasn't the main character 
telling you the story, not of someone successful, not of someone who has things, but someone on the outside, someone very isolated. I mean, I'm sure lockdown definitely added that flavour, its own atmospheric flavour, without even me really knowing about it. But I just thought this this hierarchical idea in a in society mirroring a relationship. I was watching a lot of documentaries at the time as well, like Adam Curtis and Raoul Peck, and I was thinking about how stories are told now, and try to do something similar. Yeah, I I want to come back to that idea of fandom, which of course is our theme today. But first, I I love this idea of um, someone who's not the main character and. One of the things that's so memorable about this novel is the narrator. It's in the first person. She feels so unique to me. She's so angry. She's so hungry. She's smart. She's obsessive. She fucks up. She is proud and <laughs> vulnerable. And um, I, I, I read in another interview that you were really sad to leave her when you finished writing this novel. And I wonder, what what do you think made you so bereft and what made her so attractive to you as a as a character? Because I think, although she does the darkest thing, I think there was some freedom in doing the darkest thing. And actually, just being with a voice that just does, you know, does not give a fuck and just like really doesn't care. And will do will do the almost like the thing of your id. You're acting from the id. Everything is from the want. It's almost childish I, I wouldn't even say childlike because that's a compliment but it's the childish thing to do and I think when we become grown-ups you're often fighting what your your inner child wants you know your six six-year-old five-year-old whatever that's kind of what you really want to do if, you know you want to be scared or you want to run away you want to shout at someone and, and then the adult in you has to kind of like be the grown-up so that you don't hurt everyone in your life but she just does not care she's so isolated that she can do what she wants that's it's not a barrier what other people think she doesn't care about being a good person and I thought that was quite freeing to be with and the novel feels very unjudgmental do you think that's literature's job to be unjudgmental you know she's like I don't know I I read this and I was kind of I was thinking about what I was meant to feel about her or if you wanted me to feel something about her or you know, kind of where where you ended up feeling about her. What did you end up feeling about her? I think what I felt about her was what she does is not what I would do. I like that you've turned this back on me, by the way. That's <laughs> <laughs> you in the hot seat, Carrie. But it was very refreshing mm. to read in her voice. And I felt like her anger her anger is justified and her observation about how the world works and whiteness and race and privilege and class were really spot on, even if the kind of obsessive lengths she goes to aren't necessarily what's going to bring us or other people happiness in our lives. Yeah. I mean, I think that was what was freeing for me to write it was to imagine what, what she would do. And it, it did really, her voice felt like a possession and I had to protect it. I've, uh, and weirdly, even though she's so angry, I, I didn't tell anybody for about eight months, apart from Nina, who runs Rough Trade Books, and Will Burns, who he's a writer, but was the editor of it. Apart from the three of us, no one in my life knew that I was writing this because she felt so fragile, even if she's full of fury. 
And I just thought if I speak her, she'll go away. So I just had to keep it very quiet. Wow. Yeah. So she was a secret, but it was so freeing. And when I stopped, because I could have probably tinkered for it forever, <laughs> I just kept going. And when I eventually had to like let it go, I was like so I was just empty and sad and missed her. Do you still miss her? Yeah, I still miss her. I'm a bit lost without it, though, without that kind of anchor of thinking about it and thinking about her. And I'm like, oh, what? Even now, I'm like, oh, could, could I have? What else could I have done with that? What else could she have done? How far could I have actually have gone with it? Did I go far enough? You just want to push things, don't you? You just want to push the push ideas to the absolute edge. Well, that I do anyway. I'm always fascinated by people who push ideas to the edge. Like I just watched this documentary about the KLF yesterday, and they were this band that you know in the '90s made all these great tracks, and then they burnt a million pounds. And they were like, we're not sure why we did it. They spent a year like really confused and disturbed by why they did this. And then they put a film out of the million burning all around England and the UK. And people were furious with them and they had no answer. The people were like, why did you do this? Why did you do this? And they're like, I don't know. And I think it's sometimes you just do things for the idea. Mm. And like it really got inside me and it, I was really annoyed. And I was like, I'm annoyed by something I've never seen, I've just heard of. And I thought that was really interesting conceptually as an idea. Yeah, well, it's interesting you talk about possession because that's such a big theme in the novel as well. And, you know, a lot of this novel is about the narrator's relationship with who she calls the man she wants to be with. But it's also about the woman she's obsessed with, who we hear about in that in that first chapter, who's this social media influencer she also had an affair with the man. And I felt as I was reading that the narrator's relationship with the woman she's obsessed with is is almost just as important as her relationship with the man she wants to be with. Would you agree? I mean, why was that that relationship with the woman so important? For me, I think the relationship is with the woman. It's almost like the, the man is the way to get to the woman. Or, or there's some sort, of, some sort of attractive thing about them both, but it's, it's beyond who they are as people. It's like what they represent. I think when you're growing up in Britain, you know, it's much less now, but when I was growing up here, you're told of, you know, what's the ideal, what is beautiful. You're shown constantly that you're not the ideal. You're not British or you're not held up as like the thing everybody wants to be, you know? And this woman seems to symbolize so much of what is ideal like of femininity of privilege of access of she seems to have captured the man so much more than her and it's almost like your worst fears of everything (laughs) confirmed in this one character of like oh my god I'm like sexually in competition with someone who is everything opposite to me and I just thought that was interesting to actually be faced with the thing that you fear and to be faced with what you've always suspected, you know, it's kind of like thinking about Brexit and thinking about even like Clause 9 when they said that they can take away your nationality and you just think, like, we always knew that this was it, you know, like you're kind of renting rather than have a place here. It's that kind of dark confirmation of everything that that you suspected is true becomes true. Yeah, because this character is in such a position of precarity in relation to the white people that she interacts with and also the people with status that she interacts with. I think she's she's so good at dissecting why their lives 
are so much easier than hers and how she is always made to feel that she's one step away from not belonging anymore or being rejected. Like she could be so easily disappeared in a way that this man and this woman can't. And I really felt that in her narration. But I mean, it was also, it's a political point to make a character like this unlikable and for everyone to be behaving badly. I wanted to make somebody unlikable because I feel like stories about non-white people are very funneled through this, you know, in that kind of drama triangle of like victim, rescuer, and you get stuck in these like positions. And I just feel like it's not enough to always be the the victim in the story. I don't know if that's good for us. I just wanted to do something scary and get out of this ennui thing, this like millennial ennui stuff. I loved the style of this. And it's so funny. I was talking to my colleague today and I was saying how much I like the novel. And I said, it feels really contemporary and it feels angry. And she was like, yeah, I guess irony didn't work. Yeah. I felt that actually, that you were moving beyond. It's like, how do we capture the present moment? It's not through ennui or irony, which is not to say those novels are bad. No, not at all. But I don't know if you felt that as you were writing too. Yes, I did. Because in the novels that I've read, the internet is seen as almost like a joke. And or like, oh, look at us with the internet. And I was like, this is frightening. The internet is frightening. And we act frightening on it. The internet is driven by fandom. When I was a child, I was a mad fan of Michael Jackson. Well, that's ended, obviously, now. But you're crazed. You're in this this blind love. And I wanted to move past this, like, the internet as this surface, reflective, still thing. It has an appetite to me. It has a mouth. It wants us. It seems to use us. It needs our emotions, it needs our lust and our outrage and our envy, and it needs that so we stay fixated on it. And I just wanted to, I just like, that's to me is what the internet is. It's this paradigm shifting thing. And that's why I wanted to, to move beyond the, the on we. I wanted to be off we. <laughs> <laughs> I like that neologism, which of course the internet is very good at. And, and the internet, of course, makes, I think you do a very good job in this novel of showing how the internet makes it so much easier to like stalk people. You never lose sight of someone if you don't want to, and you can learn so much about someone. But of course, the the vision you get of them is this really twisted version of like scraps that you can find and also the things that they're choosing to project about themselves. And I thought that was so interesting, the way you explored that in the novel, both the access the internet gives us, but the the warped perspective it it can give us of the world. Mm. But also of ourselves too. I know of people who get annoyed of their friends on the internet <laughs> because they don't like the persona that is projected on the internet of their own friends. Yeah, and I just thought that was really interesting, you know, to be muted by your own friends. <laughs> yeah. That's quite wild, like because there's this certain avatar you're putting out there that's just like, oh my God, please stop. But it's like, but I really like you in person, but I hate you online. <laughs> like, how, how do these two things marry? Yeah, and it's it's so true. And also that 
actually you can tell, I think people are a lot more revealing about Mm. their neediness and their emotional state than they think they're being on the internet. And I always find that's what I find difficult sometimes is I can like, I can see the need. Yeah. And I don't even know why I post online. And I really, you know, on Instagram, I just put on like, I just put all my achievements on there. I don't put when I'm sad. I never put when I'm sad. And so it's just, I don't know why I do it. What's this need? So I was kind of investigating that too, is is what is this need to project? That's not to say that I hate the internet. I think the internet's hilarious and I love it. And I love memes. A lot of the titles in the in the book are from memes because it's that, that, that dystopian black sense of humor that can sometimes get you through crisis and depression and is the only way to ridicule sometimes power. And it's funny. It's really funny, the internet. I love the internet. And the structure, just to go back to your structure question, the structure, I think I wrote it like a film in like just short scenes. I know people have talked about it like, oh, it's like a Twitter or a blog, but I just feel like that's a way to dismiss it again, like to feminize it and dismiss it because I put a lot of work into this. <laughs> Even if it looks short and not very much work, there was a lot of work gone into making the sentences just the way they are. And I don't write... I mean, I'd never write tweets, I just retweet, but I don't write on the internet the way that I wrote the book. And so there's a discrepancy there between those two things. Also, if it looks easy, that's because I put in a lot of work to make it look easy. But there is something contemporary about the writing. I really felt that, that it's like absorbed the style and the ideas of our moment, which I know is different from saying, oh, it's just a series of tweets. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to, because I wanted to write about now, because I feel like I wish, I mean, who knows, maybe nobody will be reading this book in a year because it would have dated. But I felt like I wanted, rather than write something classic that might have stood the test of time and maybe put me in the history books, who knows. But I wanted to write something for now. And sometimes now is throwaway. And sometimes the thing that you make now doesn't have any weight or meaning to it immediately and it's only over time that it's like oh that's how we were back then and I feel like we can't see the future we're very good at looking at the past and like what what is now what is now for us and I kind of wanted to bottle it and capture it and write about it yeah I was thinking that actually even how quickly this novel will date in the best possible way. It seems so of its moment. You know, you talk about Stranger Things. Yeah. You talk about the red ring ab- around Instagram, which probably won't exist in five years. And maybe you've, it's even a different color now. Yeah. It seemed very deliberate to me how of the moment it was. I watched Under the Skin when it came out. It's Jonathan Glazer's film, Under the Skin. And it blew my brain apart the way I saw him mix so many things together and not really care about form or anything, really. It was just, he was like, you know, it was part documentary, part these like nightmarish set pieces, part a normal film. There's this scene where one of the characters says, mentioned something about the Tesco car park. And I was like, this is wild that in this really beautiful, fancy film, they've just talked about Tesco. And I was like, this is absolutely wild. Like, I love this. Like, I've never heard Tesco being talked about in a film. And I wanted to write a book that had that same feeling where it has Stranger Things, it has Argos and Vianetta and uh, the Royal Academy and the Tate and 
you know, the artists that are mentioned in that, that kind of echo the the form of the book too, like these fragmentary and this, these fans, that kind of violence in it too. And I just thought, mix all these things together and see what happens. Because that's how we move through this world. You're on your phone, you're looking at something maybe 40 years ago, you're re- reading something on Wikipedia, then you're at work, then you go to Tesco, then you might go to an art show, then you're in a club. It's like that moving through space, I wanted to match it. I love that idea. Do you think that literature has a place for telling us how we're living now? I think the best thing you can get from books is seeing that you're not alone and that someone else has had the thought that you've had. I mean, that's the, that I was quite a lonely kid and books were my friends and I would feel the most amount of relief, like someone had taken bags off my back when I would see that there were other people that were lonely and there were other people that felt the same way that I did. I mean, so far, it's only been a month, but I'm glad to have connected with, I I get these very intense letters from women, which I'm just absolutely, I love receiving, (laughs) just telling me about how they're connecting to this. And there's obviously a need for it. And I'm happy to have met that need, intentionally or not. But I think that's the job of literature, is empathy. Let's talk about fandom. The title of the novel, well, you talk, you come back to the idea of fans a lot, but the first time we get the title is in this sentence in the book where she says, no one would think to invite me to a private view at the Royal Academy. I am no one. I'm a fan. And because of this, I can be cut out. So I really liked that. I liked the idea of fandom and that you wanted to explore what it's like to be a fan and the power differential that that creates. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about why you kept coming back to the idea of the fan in this novel. I really like that question. So I'm a fan is something we say all the time and I almost now can't say it, (laughs) but you hear it all the time. People are like, oh, I'm a fan of Dalila. And I thought, the thing that is missed out, the thing that is silent when you say I'm a fan is fanatic. And I think fans can move things culturally and they do move things culturally. And that's not just the internet. That's like, you know, obviously pre-internet, but like teenage girl fans are often dismissed as, you know, mostly women's interests are dismissed, but Without female fans, Bowie wouldn't have been anything. The Beatles wouldn't have been anything. And they were often forgotten out of the story. Also, then all of these like Me Too things, the power dynamic between somebody notable and someone less notable and that how that power moves between those two people and how the cultural appreciation for that person's work can support bad behaviour to this person and how that cultural appreciation can keep that person hurt or keeps them silent. And I just thought, like, there were so many instances of that that I saw. And and it happened a couple of times where I was somewhere and one of my friends were like, oh, my God, that person's famous. And I was like, what? And they were like, oh, Instagram famous. It was kind of before I took up Instagram again. And I was like, what a weird concept to be Instagram famous. And I thought, it's almost democratising because it means that, Fame is something much more achievable and is outside of the remit of the industry. It's kind of like self-made celebrity. But obviously you need fans for that. And I saw how the internet, or especially Instagram, would 
mirror that that need for fans and followers and you know it's all this quite stalkery language really feed the feed it's appetite it's all of these there's like a darker shadow to all of these words but then I was thinking why do we want fans why do we want to be Instagram famous and then I was thinking because if something bad was to happen to any one of us you'd want someone to say something and the way that someone would say something or someone would fight for you as if you were known to other people I was trying to think politically, like, how does this go into this thing? And I was thinking, you know, these Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman, the two women that were murdered in the park, like five minutes from my house in lockdown, and no one found their bodies. The police couldn't be bothered to look for them and their boyfriends found them. And I was thinking, you know, something bad was to happen to you. You want there to be an uproar. And there wasn't. It was in the local papers. It wasn't in the national papers for ages. And you're abused twice by the bad thing that happens to you. And the neglect institutionally is the second abuse. And if you had fans, that wouldn't happen. It would be less likely to happen because there would be an uproar. And really, it's only uproar that moves anything at the minute. I see that in the novel, how how fandom can be such a joyful thing. But the man she wants to be with is an artist. And she actually, she writes to him as a fan And you see how he moves around the world with relative impunity, partially just because people adore him. They don't want to believe he could be the kind of person he is with the narrator. And so they don't. Or they don't know. But I mean, it's even like that. I mean, I felt like that with Michael Jackson was I couldn't bear, I couldn't bear really integrating the knowledge of what he'd done. So I ignored it (laughs) because I wanted to listen to his music. And then a few years ago, I did watch the documentaries. And within a minute, I was like, oh, my God, this is all true. And I had to give something I love up. And who wants to do that? And I was thinking, you know, all of these bad things that happen to these women, like R. Kelly and all of these women and, you know, and men who get abused. I was just thinking we're all implicated. It's not this person over there made in a vacuum. We're all implicated when something like that happens. All of us. I wanted to have a character that really breaks down the systems around all of us because she's implicated too. What I wanted was anything that was done to her, she did to other people. That was kind of the rule that I had for her. And I wanted the book to always be on the tilt and just to keep the truth moving and to keep the sympathy moving and keep the empathy. So your empathy was always like, "Eh, should it be with her? Oh, I feel sorry for her now. Oh God, I kind of feel bad for him And, and always... You know, you're looking through her eyes and then looking at her constantly. Yeah, and I, I felt that so much. I was thinking about the relationship with her boyfriend, who she's cheating on and who is really lovely to her. And it seems to be this perfect relationship externally. He takes care of her. He tolerates her moods. He's always looking out for her. He's always thinking about her. But I think I ended the the novel kind of questioning whether that actually was a good relationship. And I liked that you questioned that. You questioned what was right for this character and and how the boyfriend was implicated in the same way that this really horrible man who like wouldn't return her emails was, you know? Yeah, and and in in a way there's a fandom in that relationship too, you know. He idolizes her the way she idolizes the man the way he idolizes that woman and so everybody's sort of outreach from everyone else and also as much as it is about obsession it is about ambivalence I'd say it's more about ambivalence than it is about obsession I realized that when I was hanging out my clothes actually (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but it's just, it's just, I think it's actually about ambivalence. Yeah. To, to kind of be in that gray space of like, why do I want this so much? And if, and you know, if you got what you wanted, would you be happy? Often we're in relationships that we're very unsure about. We're unsure about what we're doing there. And so I was just very interested in in exploring ambivalence because I feel like that's much closer to us than love even or obsession. Yeah, and and I think a lot of therapists would say that living in ambivalence is a, probably the way that most of us have to live. Exactly, because how sure are you? This is your first draft. Your first draft is your final draft. Writing and making art is a is an attempt at a second draft. I mean, it's like, that's what Sheila Hetty says in Pure Color. I think it's the most accurate thing you can say. I definitely think ambivalence is so familiar to us. It's almost painful to talk about it. Sheena Patel, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be here. It's been so fun to talk to you. This episode is sponsored by Picador. They say a picture speaks a thousand words, and nothing points to this more than the boom in graphic novels in recent years. From the 2018 Booker longlisted tale of modern mystery and paranoia, Sabrina by Nick Gernasso, to Alison Bechdel's critically acclaimed tragicomic Fun Home, more and more graphic novels are entering the mainstream and proving to be a potent medium to communicate the increasingly complex political and social issues of our time with humor and poignancy. One graphic novel that illustrates this is 12% Dread by Emily McGovern. 12% Dread tells the story of Katie and Nas, two 20-something-year-old women living in London set 10 minutes in the future. The pair of best friends, exes, and codependents living in a tiny North London room, trying their best to navigate an anxiety-inducing modern world. Relentless tech advancement, looming climate catastrophe, political turmoil. It all sounds very familiar, doesn't it? If you loved Broad City's hilarious dissection of female friendship and the queasy dystopian satire of Black Mirror, then this is for you. 12% Dread is the second graphic novel from Emily McGovern, the creator of the much-loved webcomic My Life as a Background Slytherin, exploring the weirdness and absurdity of our anxiety and tech-obsessed times. It's out now and available to purchase from bookshop.org or your local indie bookshop. All right. This is Carrie back here with Octavia. She's reappearing (laughs) to talk about fandom and literature. But first... I want to start by thinking about our own personal relationship with fandom. So Octavia, what's your relationship with fandom? Do you like the idea of being considered a fan? I mean, I'm going to start with a bit of a confession, which is I think my ego is too big. (laughs) I think honestly, like I would never say I've been a fan in relation to like another, like a fandom where I'm communicating with other people who share the same sort of love for a public figure or an artist or a musician or anything like that. I have been a fan of various people. Like, you know, I'm a big fan of Patti Smith, for example, or like Tracy Emin, the artist, loads of, loads of people, loads of musicians, loads of artists. 
and I will go and see them sometimes, but like I'm, I'm, I've never been someone who's going to turn up to every show. And I think what I said about my ego, I guess it comes down to the fact that like, I feel um, constrained to completely give myself over to fandom because I want to be cool as well. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's really, and I think it holds me back from something that I see giving people an enormous amount of pleasure, you know, but I do think that I'm hampered by that. And the thing I'm interested in, because I'm quite an obsessive person and I'm surprised that I've never tipped into fandom. And I think the thing that held me back has been my massive ego. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> what about you? Well, because I want to dig into that because what is uncool about fandom? I know what you mean instinctively, but why do we think it's uncool? Right. And actually, I don't think it is uncool. That's the thing. I don't think actually in my conscious brain that it is uncool. And the thing I see happening with friends of mine who are dedicated fans of various things is that it brings them a deep pleasure. It's a joyful celebration of something they love. It's a hobby. It can completely enrich their life. And I think that there's almost a snobbery in wanting to hold yourself back from that that is negative, actually. I mean, there's obviously a very natural wariness of putting people on pedestals, but I think the joy of fandom when it's for a celebrity or let's say like a sports team or something that is socially sanctioned is that you can put these people on pedestals safely because you're never expecting to hang out with Madonna or Lady Gaga. I think it's different with writers because when you read a writer's writing, you have such a direct channel into their brain. And unlike film or music or dance or even art, well, it depends. Artists, I think, are more like writers, but the other things where it's a big production that involves lots of other people, you're at a bit of a remove. Even when you listen to Beyonce's album, you feel like Beyonce's right next to you and you're listening to her tell you about whatever she's talking about. You also can't deny the fact that there's a huge production team around her. Whereas the writer or the artist, you have that myth of a direct line into their brain and their psyche, right? So that kind of fandom, I think, is a bit different. But I don't know. What do you think? It's definitely an ego thing for me, too. I I love talking passionately and recommending passionately, as you know, and as our listeners know, the things that I love. But I don't totally give myself over to fandom a lot of the time. And I think it's partially that I'm not that obsessive a person. Like, I'm not often a completist with certain authors or, you know, need to own every album by a musician. Like, I think that's, that's a part of fandom. There's a certain humility to fandom that I don't necessarily have. And you have to be able to be like, I really love this person and they're never going to love me back. And I think there's a part of me that's like, well, if they're not going to fully love me back, I'm not going to fully give myself (laughs) up. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I like kind of want to be their friend. (laughs) If they're not going to be friends with me, I want to be on their level. I don't want to be below them screaming up at the stage. There is something a little bit unequal about fandom, isn't there? I mean, is do you think that's part of why it's so interesting in terms of literature? Yeah, I mean, I think that of course there is because also, you know, you have to bring the idea of the commodity into this as well, right? Like fans of whatever it is, whether it's a, um, a an individual or a group, whether a band or a football match or whatever, football team even. You can tell I'm not a fan of football. <laughs> <laughs> a football match. I'm a fan of a football <laughs> match. Um, but whatever, whether it's an individual or a group, you know, there's an exchange. There's a, you're buying your way into their orbit or you're buying the, a version of what they made. So, and like, can the artist survive without their fans? So like, there is this unequal relationship. They're also mutually reliant on one another. 
And I was thinking in that context about how the idea of the fangirl doesn't really have a fanboy equivalent. And we tend to, you know, like our stereotypical of a fan or a groupie is like a screaming girl who's like totally obsessed with someone and sort of replicating that idea of the of the power balance. But I think a lot of interesting literature has flipped that a little bit and shown that those gendered misconceptions are just that, you know, that that there's a lot more to the fan than just somebody screaming from the audience. Well, also the gender question is so fascinating because you're right, like the accepted idea of the fangirl as screaming girls fainting in front of the Beatles. But have you ever been to a sports match with a stadium full of men screaming their guts out? It's not different. <laughs> That's so true. Right? It's just sexism <laughs> in how we think about it. I just think that there is this impulse in human nature to idolize and to commit in this way to loving something that is bigger than just another individual. And we see it regardless of people's gender and we see it regardless of people's social status. I think it happens naturally. And that's why I think that you and me, like our lack of humility that doesn't allow us to do it is maybe holding us back from an experience that's really uh, wonderful in some way. (laughs) (laughs) But also like celebrity is this really old thing. I was thinking about, you know, the poet Lord Byron, who is often described as the first modern celebrity, who when his work was published in the printing presses in 1812, it went everywhere. And because he was handsome and he was very clever and he was a total shagger, people fell completely into obsession about him. Women used to send them, send locks of their hair to him. They used to mob him in the street, honestly, like a, you know, modern day pop star. And he was a poet. Yeah. (laughs) And then he wrote poems about being idolized by people, which I think is funny. Like that, like he was responding to his fans. Right. Which is exactly also (laughs) what Lady Gaga does, no? In her music, right? Like it's so true. I think you're right. We're we're all fans. And I I was thinking about this in terms of obsession because we've all been obsessed with someone or something. It's a totally human impulse and we can all name it. But I've really noticed it's become almost trendy. And I and I don't mean this in a pejorative way. I just think it's interesting that people talk a lot more about being like totally obsessed with something. And like even the fact that standing has entered our cultural lexicon. And I, I've just been wondering, like, are we in a moment of fandom? Are we in a moment of obsession? Do you think that's happening? And and do you have any sense of what might be behind that? That's so interesting. It's funny because I'm in the tunnel. It feels very far from, <laughs> from, from my brain right Should now. Should I answer my no, own no, question? No, no. no I want to know what you think, but I actually do have an answer, which is that I think it must be to do, in my mind anyway, it's to do with the internet. It's to do with access because obsession is fed by information, isn't it? And you know what this is like. If you're obsessed with something or someone, like the more little tidbits about them you can get hold of, the more the obsession grows. And essentially information is oxygen to obsession. And if you want to stop having an obsession, you starve it of information and eventually it will go away. And I think the fact that if you are a fan of anybody, if you can get into their social media, you know, that famous people, people of note are now more accessible in a way than they ever have been. So I think that we feel intimate with a much greater number of people because of social media in particular. So I feel like that feeds it maybe. Yeah, I think you're right that the internet has so much to do with it. I also wonder, you know, there's been all of this news about social institutions breaking down. 
And I think fandom kind of to refer to what you were saying before about it being this like fun, wonderful thing can take the place of a community. Totally. And and people can find each other on the internet, as you say, in ways they hadn't been able to before. So it's it's like fandom is a new kind of way of being together, essentially. It's not necessarily about the object of fascination. It's about the people you meet along the way, you know? Right, exactly. And what you share. I also think it can be a way of claiming or sharing a part of your identity without actually revealing anything about yourself. If you talk about who you're into, what you like, you're not really revealing anything personal, even though you can create a very strong bond with somebody else over this shared interest. So I think it's quite an interesting kind of social glue as well, just like what you were saying, you know, that builds communities. Totally. And this is a slightly separate point, but I am just so fascinated by fan fiction. Oh yeah. And I think it's such an interest. It's like really creative. Like it's a way of fandom being an amazing creative space where people take a world that's been created by somebody else and, and completely make it their own. Right, which is what we do anyway when we read. It's just an extension of that experience, I think. Fan fiction is incredible. Yeah, I've I really want this is really an aside, but um as an agent, I would love to represent a deep dive look at fan fiction and like fan fiction communities and stuff. I think that would be fascinating. Well guys, you heard it here first. <laughs> send, send me pictures. Send me pictures, yeah. But I was thinking about that idea of obsession and a lot of the novels that I could think of that dealt with fandom were kind of about obsession when obsession goes too far. Like I was thinking about The Talented Mr. Ripley by Patricia Highsmith, Eileen by Otessa Moshfag, even Lolita. That's a, I mean, that's fandom is maybe not the right way to describe that novel, but there, there's an element of that, the kind of worship that turns sour and curdles. Um, right. And is also a question of power dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. Or Sympathy by Olivia Sujic, which is about a woman who becomes obsessed by a novelist and is actually a lot about the internet. So has a lot to do with what we've just been talking about. I was thinking also about I Love Dick by Chris Krause, which is about obsession. I wouldn't say it was about dark obsession though. It's kind of almost puts obsession over as something that can be agonizing, but also very enlivening, very Mm. enriching, which I do think is an interesting perspective to hold in mind. Are there any novels that are just like what it's like to be a fan? Do you know of any contemporary things? Because I had a little bit of trouble thinking of examples. There was one that I have really wanted to read and I haven't yet called The Giant Dark by Sarvet Hassan. And I don't know if it's exactly that, but it's told from multiple perspectives, which sounds very interesting. So from the perspective of a musician, also from the perspective of her muse, and then also from her fan base. So it sounds like it's absolutely exploring all of this stuff. And then there was also a poetry collection called Gold Light Shining by B.B. Ashley, which is about her experience of being a Harry Styles fan. Harry Styles, I'm going to say right now, I didn't get until just now, and now I get it. (laughs) (laughs) I still don't totally get it. Have you listened to his new album? No. You will get it. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. (laughs) And then the other one actually was a book called Fangirls, Scenes from Modern Music Culture by Hannah Ewens, which is, again, sounds so interesting, interviewing fans from older and newer music fandoms. So there's kind of the Beatles, Rolling Stones generation, and then there's the more the Harry Styles, Lady Gaga generation. And she's looking at how the internet changed 
how fandom operated in those two different generations. So that sounds, yeah, very interesting. Fascinating, like a non-fiction exploration of yeah. a fandom. And I I bet it gets into that question of fangirls as well. You know, why why do we use that gendered term? Title. Yeah. <laughs> I bet it, I bet it might talk about it. Um, (laughs) uh, But yeah, speaking of nonfiction, I was thinking about fandom from the context of celebrity memoirs and like books written for fans. And I wonder how you feel about that. Like there is something so exciting about the promise of access to someone's life, but is there anything at all exploitative about it? I don't know. Oh yeah. Yeah. What, what's your view? I think definitely in that, it's a product, right? Yeah. And often these memoirs are ghostwritten. And I always find it quite funny when they come out, when someone obviously has to pay a big tax bill, like Pete Doherty's got one coming out soon. And he did recently quite a big interview in The Guardian where he basically admitted it was because he had to pay a tax bill. He hasn't read it. <laughs> His ghostwriter <laughs> has said some stuff that he doesn't agree with. Like I enjoyed how free he was about the cynicism of the entire project, because I think it gets uncomfortable when people try to pretend it's not cynical. And I think once you reach a certain level of fame, it's always cynical because you've always become a product. The only people I think who manage to avoid that are like Patti Smith, the way that she writes her memoirs, sidesteps that because she writes them herself. I think that is the difference. Yeah, she writes them herself and and they're not, they are about her life, but they're they're kind of about other people and about creating things literature exactly they're about yeah. being they're about literature and they they have high aims to be literature and i guess what i'm talking about with the other ones is they're not really i mean they're not really trying to be great writing they're just delivering more access yeah. for money i do i do think there are a lot of good musician memoirs like Viv Albertine, of course, we love. So great. There, there are lots of really interesting writers, but you're right. There are definitely some that are just throwing it out there um, to get the advance. And what what I kind of like from from a industry perspective is I think readers have slightly gone off that. You know, a celebrity celebrity memoirs used to be like the backbone of the publishing industry. And if you were a celebrity and like shit on the pages of a book, some like people would buy it in numbers. (laughs) And now you have to be a little bit more clever than that. You have to be a little bit more revealing. You have to have a story to tell. You have to actually seem like you care about the story you're telling. And I know it's still all fake, but that makes me happy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A low bar. (laughs) Um, So... Do you have a book that you'd like to recommend about our theme fandom? I do. And it's a slight sidestep, but I think it still counts. It's the it's the book Bluets by Maggie Nelson, which opens with the line, suppose I were to begin by saying that I had fallen in love with a colour. And it's, it's often described as a book of prose poems, but Nelson actually prefers to call them propositions. It's very short and written in these fragments, which are these propositions, which describe how collecting blue things helped her navigate a period of depression, a blue period and deep sadness, which was brought on by the end of a very powerful love and also caring for a close friend who needed a lot of support physically. And it's fabulous. And I I would say my collecting impulse is more driven by colour than it is by anything else. So I really related to it. I love that. But it's she's fallen in love with the colour. Like she's a fan of the colour. Exactly. You know? I need to read that. It's so fantastic. So mine is Eileen by Atessa Moshfeg, which I mentioned briefly earlier. It's a novel about obsession 
and it really does stretch the idea of obsession to its limit. It takes it to its darkest ends. Good old Otessa. <laughs> she, she, she loves to do that. It's the story of Vylene, who's this self-loathing loner in a small New England town. She becomes obsessed with a new counselor who comes to the prison that she works with. And this obsession, I, I don't want to give anything away, but it leads her to a very dark place, culminating in a very, very surprising and shocking ending. And it, it's it's a wonderfully taught novel. It's really gross. It's really interesting. And I think kind of to, to go back to what I was saying before, Moshveg understands the power of literature to show somebody's state of mind and how to show obsessive thoughts and ideas and kind of worm your way into someone's consciousness. And it's, it's absolutely thrilling to read. I am back here with Sheena to give our book recommendations. So Sheena Patel, can you please recommend a book for our listeners? I would love to. So recently I read We Move by Ganek Johal. So my brain went sideways over the pandemic like everyone's did. And it was like one of the first fiction books that I read. And I was astounded, like I'm still terrified to really take it in, how his his imagination is incredible. Um, it's a book of short stories, some of them differ in length. There's a few that recurring characters that run through. And the breadth and depth of his empathy. And it's it just takes in so many voices. And it's just gorgeous. And I absolutely adore it. And I, when I first started reading it, I was like, oh God, is it going to be telling me the same stories as before? But it absolutely ranges from like, ages and places and they're all really centered around Heathrow and West London and it was really nice to read things that felt familiar and I think he's really talented I think he's writing a novel at the minute I just think he's definitely one to watch for sure so I'd highly recommend we move that sounds excellent I feel like I'm always looking for empathy in the books I'm reading I know this isn't part of the thing, but I would also recommend Paul Dalla Rosa's short stories. He's Australian and they are so dark. They're both of those books, I was like, they're brilliant. Paul Dalla Rosa has these characters that are, I, at one point I was like screaming at one of the characters, I was like, at the book. <laughs> I was like, why are you doing that? I like literally shouted and I was like, wow, how did he make me do that? That's amazing. And it's that kind of, it's the same sort of internet, but again, it's very visceral internet. There's no ennui about it. It, it can make you really angry. Like you don't know why some of the characters are doing what they're doing, but it it's that sense of like step, leaning into delusion mm. and thinking that your delusions are completely make sense. Amazing. Yeah. What are you reading? Well, the book that I just finished that I'd like to recommend is Lost and Found by Catherine Schultz. Have you heard of this book? No, I haven't heard of this book. Yeah. So it's a memoir about two things that happened almost simultaneously in the author's life. She lost her beloved father. And just a few months before she met the woman that would become her partner. And 
Schultz is a staff writer on The New Yorker. She's won a lot of awards. She wrote that famous piece called The Big One about the earthquake that's going to separate the like parts of the West Coast of America from so I would really recommend that piece if you haven't if you haven't read that it's in, fantastic it's called the big one and I think in this book you can feel that journalistic background a bit because she uses the idea of losing and finding to kind of structure her thoughts and she she goes into the kind of more factual discussion of like what is losing what what how <gasps> do we lose things that sounds great. Yeah. But for me, the real strength of this memoir is when she's talking about her own emotions, like grief, love, how inseparable those things are from each other. And she's just a beautiful writer. It's so raw. It's really earnest, but in a good way, I think. It's very vulnerable. I cried multiple times while I was reading it, both when she was describing the death and the sadness of the death of her father, but, but also it was just about like love, like her, her utter belief in love. And it's really beautiful. And, and the kind of serendipity of finding love, how, how startling and amazing and almost impossible it feels. And the last section, when she talks about the and and lost and found, which I thought was very clever is particularly poignant and I, I would just really recommend it. It's a, it's a beautiful memoir. Oh my God, I almost cried you talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so so that's Lost and Found by Catherine Scholz. Yeah, you should read it. Oh my God. I will cry. You just want to make me cry. (laughs) I do. I I wanted people to feel sick, so I guess I deserve it. Good. (laughs) I did feel sick. I did Did feel sick reading it. Brilliant. Amazing. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Sheena Patel, to Daphne Carnesis for editing, and to Eddie Knight for music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram and get in touch by email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes an enormous difference and it helps us reach more listeners. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. Literary Friction.